0: Uh, it's summertime, so we know that some folks are doing last-minute travel before school starts. School starts in like two weeks. Yes. Whatever happened to August, man? Where kids, yeah, right. It seems like to me, I remember back, it was uh, like the Labor Day weekend was like the second week or the first week of school. Boy, how things change. Anyway, um, this is going to give me problems here. Got to get this thing hooked up. I must have a deformed ear because it doesn't want to stay on my ear. Um, so, uh, I feel like this summer, uh, Scott Walker, one of our elders, he's the Bible teacher, and I'm his backup. And he's done a wonderful job. I've been listening... Uh, if I couldn't listen the night of, I would come back later and, and watch the, the service. Uh, so thankful for Scott and what he does for us. Uh, some of you might wonder, why did that happen? Where, where was the change? Well, three, three reasons why. The first was on purpose. Scott actually will retire from teaching in, this, in Indian River County schools uh, another year and a half he has left in the DROP program. And so, he has always desired from day one that we started Viral Bible Fellowship. He has desired to serve the church in whatever way he can, uh, and especially when he retires, just to serve. And because he's an elder, he has to be able to teach. And of course, he can teach. And uh, so, so it's just more training for him, giving him opportunities. In the summer, when he's out of school, he has more time to study. And so that's, that's the main reason why you've seen more of Scott. But the other two contributing factors, one would be we have had a very intensive summer of uh, caring for the flock. Uh, we've had some significant things happen in our church in the last couple, three months, and uh, a lot of caregiving going on. And of course, we have three of our wonderful members who now are with Jesus. And... Uh, we had Bill's service on Saturday. How many of you attended that? Was that not a hoot or what? My goodness, I don't know, a lot of what was said probably shouldn't be said in a, in a funeral service, but but if you know Bill, um, it was a Bill-type service. And uh, I spoke with David Greenes. David wor- worships at a church in Indiana. And it, it's kind of an uppity kind of a setting, you know. I, I went to school up there, so I, I kind of know the setting. and. But Bill, uh, I'm sorry, Dave Reams, the guy who spoke at Bill's, he was his roommate and stuff. uh, Dave actually grew up and went to First Church of God in Vero. Yeah, he got his start in Vero. So he was sitting uh, right there behind me. And uh, so as this stuff is going down, you know, I'm thinking, man, I wonder what Dave's thinking coming from Indiana. And I said, Dave, this service has had just about everything you want to have, and then a lot of things that probably you weren't expecting to have. And he leaned forward he goes, isn't it wonderful? Because he he knows Bill better than anybody. And that's what he loved about Bill, the genuine, the authentic. So what a wonderful service that was. And that really was a celebration of life, wasn't it? And so we had that service. And now uh, this Saturday, we have a a celebration of life in a different way. It's... uh, uh, going to be the Walkers and uh, the Frasers, two children coming together, Natalie and Ryan, in uh, marriage. So we're going to have the wedding on Saturday. And then next Tuesday we have another memorial service. It'll be a celebration of life for Kay Staples. And then we have not yet met with uh, uh, Phyllis Libonati to lay out the schedule for George's service and also plan the service, but I'm looking forward to that. And uh, it's good to see you, Phyllis, so good to have you. I saw you Sunday, I saw you Saturday. You you were really uh, connected into the body and I think, I, I know that's encouraging to you to be around God's people, amen. So it's just been that kind of a season. The third reason why Scott's been teaching more is because there are a couple times, Rene and I took a long weekend for us this summer, earlier in the summer. And then recently, we just took a trip up to North Georgia, up in the Hill country, and uh, we got a Airbnb that was big enough to hold 20 people. And so all of our kids, and which are 10, 10 adults, uh, spouses along came along too, and then also all of our 10 grandkids. And we celebrated Rini's 60th birthday. And we had the most glorious time together and just so thankful. I don't take any of that for granted. None of us ever should take for granted when we have opportunity to be with our families because life is short, right? And you just never know how long you have each other. And so for us to be together in that setting for four days or three and a half days was so so much fun. So Scott's just filled uh, this podium, this pulpit, adequately, so adequately, and I'm thankful for him. Uh, I think he finished up around verse 24 of chapter 15 in 1 Kings last week, so I want to pick up from there. I've been struggling for a couple weeks with sickness. I, I don't get it, um, but especially since last Wednesday, a week ago, I'm kind of a cold or a sinus infection, and I'm just filled up I did something last night, i got to share this, because we're not into the teaching yet, so this is not part of the sermon, but I thought it was pretty good. Last night, So or night before last, I'm really coughing a lot, and I'm sitting up in a chair all night long, getting very little sleep, you know? So I shared that with my brother, who just came down from Alabama. He and his wife and two boys are here visiting just until Saturday morning. And I told Barry about it, and he said, Greg, he said, do you have any Vicks? I said, I don't know. She, I'm sure Renie has some here in the house, but she was out. I said, I don't know where to look. I said, so, does that sound like a guy in the, in the house, you know, clueless? Yeah, that's me. But I did know, I knew that I had some tiger bomb. And who is the person in our church that turned me on to tiger bomb? Who? Raise your hand, Shelby. Shelby, don't be so quiet. That was, that was such a blessing to me. So here's what I did. Shelby, no, I've got something new. You take, you take Tiger, this is my brother told me, take the Tiger bomb, put it between your toes, and then put socks on and go to bed. When you're coughing, listen, literally, I stopped coughing. The capillaries, the blood vessels between your toes are so close that it absorbs in. And literally, And so Easton spent the night last night, he's coughing. We put that between his toes, put some socks on him, it stopped. Frank, you been coughing? There you go, buddy. Take some Vicks, Vicks Vapor Rub or take some Tiger Bomb and have at it, buddy. All right. So that's the fun thing tonight that we've talked about. Let's get to the Word of God, which is much more serious, and that's the reason we've gathered, the worship of God is the greatest thing that any of us could ever do, is to worship Him. There's so many ways to worship Him, and <clears throat> one of the great ways is by the study of His Word. So take your Bible, if you will, 1 Kings chapter 15, we're going to pick it up around verse 25, and uh, uh, I, I, I want this is where, where Scott left off last week. And As we read about the short reign of Nadab, king of Israel, uh, it says that he reigned for a little over a year. Okay, So now let me, let me give this to you. This is interesting. If we read verse 25, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, remember Jeroboam? Uh, one of the few guys that God came and, and made a judgment against. And Jeroboam, his son, Nadab, is now the king And he look what it says here. Uh, He was king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. Now, it was not two years. It was actually a year and just a little more than a year. Okay? But in Hebrew timekeeping, they would go ahead and say that's two years. That's why it says two years. Now, it says... Verse 26, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. So right out of the gate, folks, we find Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, who follows in his father's footsteps in the ways that were so wicked. He continued in idolatry. He continued in a hardness of heart towards God, the opposite of David. He had a hardness of heart towards God, okay? 2 Chronicles, write it down or turn there. I will read it, but you don't have to turn. We won't be there long. 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen 14 through 15. 2 Chronicles 11, 14 through 15. It says, For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons, okay, had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the uh, satyrs, and for the calves which he had made. So he was in full-blown idol worship. He and his sons chased out the priests of the most holy God. So when it says here that he was like his father, it means it. He was part of m- removing... Israel's priests. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel sin. Now, what does Nadab's name mean? It means willing, willing, willing to continue in to perpetuate the sin of his irredeemable father. So there you go, that's Nadab. He didn't last long, not even two years. He was a year and just a few months and he was gone. Okay. Verse 27, excuse me for crunching, I've I've got one of those mints in my mouth. I don't normally try to preach or teach with a mint in my mouth, but tonight I need to. Okay, verse 27, then Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So, Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Interesting. He came into power in the second year of, of the king of Judah. Now he's going to be dying the third year. So it really wasn't two years. It came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of their sins, of Jer- the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel all their days." So. You had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom at war with one another, okay? These are wicked kings. Basha was not a good king. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you got God using one evil king to take out another evil king. That's really what happened here. When Basha became king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam, who was wicked. Now, you might wonder, is this the hand of God? Is God actually causing these these deaths, these assassinations, and killing these guys as part of judgment. Well, it's it's possible, but these guys are so wicked, it's more likely God is just letting them carry out their own evil wickedness. He's not withholding them from doing it. That's probably more the case here. So had Jeroboam remained obedient to the Lord, God had promised him in 1 Kings 11.38 that he would have a lasting dynasty, okay? In the, uh, like, And it God even said it'll be like the house of David, which is the greatest dynasty, right? So Jeroboam, if you'll follow me, you'll have, like David, a lasting dynasty, okay? His dynasty didn't last long at all because of wickedness. Now, if we just take that passage and we try to see what God would be saying to us today, whenever you look at a passage, always know who's speaking, always know who he or she is speaking to, understand the context, the Scriptures before and after, because that passage, if you don't consider what's before it and after it, you can actually read that one verse and take it out of context. Misappropriate uh, the Scripture. But you also, in in Bible study, trying to understand what's going on, you also want to see and observe in the text what God is saying, not what you think, what your opinion is of the text. This is where Bible studies in homes and life groups, which I support, I'm, I'm in favor of those things, but it's easy to see a Bible study, a home Bible study, Go in a wrong direction when you read a story in the Bible and then the leader says to the group, well, what does that mean to you? And then somebody goes, well, I think it means, and somebody else, well, here's what I think it means, none of them having taken the time to look before and after and observe and interpret and apply the text. The only question you ask when you read the Bible is, what is God trying to say so what is in this for us you've got wicked kings who turn away from the lord who introduce into israel all kinds of wickedness idolatry witchcraft and 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 what is god saying through all this and then they die early he's just saying that There's a way that seems right unto man. But in the end, it leads to death. That if you do life your way, you you run the risk of shortening your life. Does that make sense? If, If you're a person who you're given to alcohol, and after work, instead of heading home to take the paycheck to the wife, you stop off at the bar and you get loaded, you're sauced. You get in your car, which you shouldn't be driving. You shouldn't be drinking to that extent. You shouldn't be driving. And now all of a sudden you go home, or you're on the way home, and you hit a tree and you die. Or, God forbid, you hit somebody else and they die. See, that's that's the result of sin. The Bible is loaded with scriptures about this. So the takeaway for us from God would be that He really wants us to walk in His precepts to live according to His Word. That in itself does not guarantee a long life. It just doesn't. Because this is a life, this is a world of sin, sickness, and disease. And little children die all the time. And it's not fair from a human perspective. From God's perspective, He would say, you really want me to be fair? Then He thinks back, to Adam and Eve in the garden, sinning and them having to cast them out of the garden because of sin and established, even in Romans, Paul, he, he reminds us, the wages of sin is death. That's fair. Who hasn't sinned? Why are any of us alive according to God's standard of fairness? But God's mercy, His love, His grace rolls in like a like like the waves coming from the ocean after a good storm you know or a hurricane I, I never when I was a young kid in Daytona I never tried to surf uh in the waves after a hurricane I, I had buddies that did and one of them got injured pretty severely doing that because the water's dirty you don't know what's in the water and you can't see anything and it's and it's just torrential I mean it's just is hard. Uh, but I never did that. Why? Because I knew that it could lead to either me getting hurt or I could die. It wasn't worth it. I'm not going to do that. But God's love is also like the wave after a hurricane in that when you get out there in those waves, they're so big you can't control them. And God loves you so much. You deserve death. You deserve hell. But God sent Jesus to die for us, right, in our place. So God hits you with a wave of His love that it just overwhelms you. Overwhelms you. And, and His mercy and His grace. You ever catch yourself just, really, think about it. Think about your life in sin before you came to surrender before Christ. Think about some of the things that you did. Think about the way you thought. Wouldn't it be terrible if somehow God played all of our thoughts in public on a big screen through our life? That's the stupid part of, of cancel culture. Somebody's canceled because of something they did 20 years ago. Good grief, nobody. If we, all of our things that we've thought and done 20 years back and forward, none of us would be able to do anything. God is a redeeming God. God is a merciful God. He's just waiting for us to humble up, to confess sin. He's waiting for us to repent of our sin. These guys, these kings that we're studying in Israel, they had no desire to repent. These men are irredeemable. They don't want that. And God knew it. See, God has foreknowledge. So before these guys even became king, He already knew that their hearts were bent towards sin. They would never turn. And so God allows things to play out where it shortens their lives and they don't live a full life. Well, this is the case here. Uh, So instead, because of Jeroboam's sin, his son only reigned for two years. Uh, And and Nadab uh, was assassinated. It's a pretty tough death. Things are going well, you think you're going to live a long life, and all of a sudden your your life is taken from you. And by that death, every one of Jeroboam's descendants were gone. Nobody else to carry the kingdom forward. This is the guy that God said to him, if you'll follow me, you'll have a long dynasty like David. And now, already, gone. No surviving members of the family who could serve as king. So, big picture, God made use of one wicked man to destroy another wicked man. That's what happened. Now, just for clarification's sake, again, Nadab was king for a little more than one year. Not that, don't think, it because it says two years, it was not. This, this guy didn't last very long because of his sinfulness. So, this ends the first of the nine dynasties for the 250 years uh, ruled, uh, maybe a better word is misruled, uh, in the northern kingdom, Israel. So, think about this. In the northern kingdom, you know, Israel is divided now from Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom, and Israel's the northern, and the, the divided kingdom lasted 250 years, and in that period of time, there were nine dynasties in the northern kingdom. This is the first one, Jeroboam and it came to an end, it's gone. Before we finish reading tonight, two more will fall. We'll go through two more dynasties. And believe me, we're talking about two more men, basically. I mean, it happens quick. Okay, so let's look a little closer at the reign of Basha, king of Israel. He's the guy that took out uh, the son of Jeroboam. Verse 33, in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, they're always measuring everything by the southern kingdom, and the king who sits on the throne, who is Asa. So now he's in his third year. Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned for 24 years. That's pretty good. That's a long time. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. You're going to see that repeated over and over and over again, that this this king walked in the ways of Jeroboam, this king walked in the ways of Jeroboam, which tells you, and this is very important to me to say, the Bible from the very beginning in Genesis, before the fall, God created a headship, an authority. It's a spiritual authority. It's not a power authority. It's a humble authority. He created an authority and He gave it to Adam. He did not give it to Eve. Adam was created first. Eve came along because after naming all the animals, Adam named them all, there was no one for him. And God said, I need to make him a woman. When Adam saw her, he said, this is good. He, not God, named her woman. Headship was given to the man. I don't say that, ladies, out of a chauvinistic background or or desire. I, I'm simply telling you spiritually, before the fall, before sin entered, God already, in the New Testament, Paul said, "The glory of God is man, and the glory of man is woman." Now he didn't mean. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the man is more spiritual than the woman. Just because God gives man spiritual headship in his home has nothing to do with who's more spiritual. A woman can be far more spiritual than a man. Uh, It has nothing to do with gifting. A woman can have just as many or more gifts, use her gifts even more effectively than the man. It has no bearing on on the identity, or better yet, the position of the man or the woman in the home before Christ. It's not like it's okay when Paul said, the glory of God's man, the glory of uh, man is a woman. He wasn't saying that at the foot of the cross, man's ahead of the woman. No, no. Paul also said, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. In position before Christ, we are all equal. Me being a pastor does not place me a little bit ahead or above you folks at all. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. What is that? What does that look like? A bunch of sinners who have humbled up and confessed sin and asked Christ to forgive us. We're all equal in that, okay? So, with all that being said, so what is spiritual headship? Headship is a responsibility and an accountability that man will have to give before God, not woman. That's why in 1 Peter 3, Peter goes into about a six-verse thing with, with woman, and he talks about how she should carry herself, you know, how she should behave, how she should, should uh, carry herself as a woman of God. And she, he even refers to Sarah, Abraham's wife, in the Old Testament. Six verses laying it out for the woman. Then with one verse, he addresses men. And he says, men, you need to honor and cherish and treat your spouse as an equal heir to the the things of God or your prayers will not be heard. He didn't say that to the woman. He talked about the importance of a woman. There's time for her to not speak, but listen. And that doesn't mean that a man shouldn't either. But I'm just saying he—that's what he said. But he doesn't come back and say, "And if you—and if you do speak out of place, if you become a gossip, if you become one that tries to rule the home, then God won't hear your." He didn't say that. He said it to the men. There's a spiritual headship. So for me, like at a wedding, uh, one of the steps that's that. Can be very important is your it's a handoff in some way, shape, or form. Weddings are different, but the father walks the bride down the aisle. Why? Why not the mom? Now, today in our society, mom can do it. In fact, mom and dad. And I've even had weddings where mom and dad walk together. Okay, that's not right. but the reality is that when you see a a, a father walking his a daughter as a bride down the aisle. That's a picture of headship. It's the final leg of a long journey where he had primary responsibility before God for that girl. And it's his final opportunity to walk her. And then a young man steps out and he joins those two together. And he sits down. Why? because now that guy has responsibility and, a, and accountability of headship for her. It's a caring, it's a loving, it's a nurturing, it's a comforting, it's, it's all the good stuff God expects a man to do for the woman. So, I just want to explain that because a lot of times... But see, look at the world. If, I, if they heard me say that God has given headship to a man, not the woman, if they heard me say, Well, the Bible says the glory of God is man and the glory of of man is woman. They would flip out because they don't understand the beauty of it, the way God's described it. There are things that a woman in her role in the home with that child does that a man can never do. And neither can a woman replace the father in the home, even though... In Black Lives Matter, in their manifesto, on their website, no mention of the man in the home. Why? Because 75% of all kids living in the inner city do not have a father in their home. So they're embracing what the culture is doing, which is sinful, which is going in the direction that these kings took the northern kingdom. And they're, they're completely abandoning and ignoring Look, even to this day, you say, what's the answer? It's not a politician. It's not a vote. I'm telling you right now. Now, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for the person that I think best represents the righteousness of God, okay? Even though they might not even be a Christian. That's okay. I'm going to vote for the person who's, who I think is closer to what the Scripture teaches. But that's not going to change America. No man can change America. No woman can change America. No, no Congress can change America. No Supreme Court can change America. America's problem is in the heart, right? It's in the heart, it starts in the home. When you reject the family, you actually reject God's, His protective system. That's part of His protective system. To have kids growing up under a mom and dad. There are things that a mom can say to a child that are so meaningful, so important, and There's things that a father says that the mom can't say the same way. The boy will not receive it from his mom like he will his dad. Vice versa with girls and her mom. It's the way it is. And when you when you ignore that, now you're in a very unhealthy environment. And we created that environment in America because we turned from God. Right? The whole world's doing it. That's that's so we we shouldn't just look at these guys for their wickedness, for the idolatry, for the witchcraft, worship, and all that, as if these guys are way worse than, than we are. They're not. You, it makes me wonder, honestly, when I, when I read this text, I have to wonder, so why is God not judging us? And then I think about it. Maybe He is. That's why these things are happening. That's why if you ask a woman on the street today, she cannot say or tell you, truly what a woman is, even though she might think it in her mind. Well, it's an adult female. She's a female because she has female genitalia. But she can't say it. Because if she's at all part of a liberal environment, that is a no, no. Remove all gender identity. It's sad. We've turned from God. No wonder we're seeing our kids rebel the way they are. No wonder we're seeing this nation and and really the world continuing in a downward spiral because of sin. So I've really gotten off point in a sense, but this stuff is just burdening my heart. I I, I do, I wake up in the mornings and I get into the Word and I start praying for uh, families, praying that God would help us recover true families where 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 mothers would desire to have a father in the home again, where fathers would stop abdicating their role to the woman and be the man and be with their children and stay in the home and be faithful to their spouse. You know, I don't know about you, but don't give up on that. We should always seek for that, okay? Because people need it. And a lot most people today, they don't even know what we're talking about when you talk about that. You do know that. We're so many generations removed from the time when mom and dad were in the home and they carried out their roles that the young people today, even though those in their forties, thirties, forties, fifties, they didn't have that. So how are they to know? So we shouldn't look down and, and criticize and judge and belittle them. It'd be like you being held responsible for something that you had no clue was wrong. It's not fair. So that's the case with them. We need to show mercy and grace and try to help them understand it. I'm telling you if you if you speak the truth of God, cast broadcast the seed of the word today, you will be persecuted. But that's okay. That's how we turn a nation around. That's how we turn a people around. So we got to we got to continue to do that. So that's what's happening here. This this is really this is really interesting. It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam. The summary is pretty simple here. Although Basham was not a, gen- a genetic descendant of Jeroboam, he was a spiritual descendant. He was a spiritual descendant of Jeroboam. Okay? He had a responsibility as the king, and he didn't carry it out. And, and so, this is the problem that we see. So, let's go to chapter 16. I don't know that we'll get real far, but we'll, we'll try to bite off a chunk here. We look... We're now, in this chapter alone, get this, in this chapter, we're going to look at five successive kings of Israel. It covers two more dynasties. Remember now, in Israel, the northern kingdom, there's nine dynasties in a 250-year period. One dynasty already fallen, Jeroboam. Now there's going to be two more in this chapter that fall. Okay? Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, So now... God is sending His man to speak against Basha who assassinated Jeroboam's son who was king. He says, "...inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over My people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made My people Israel sin, provoking Me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Basha and his house." In other words, nobody from your house is going to live. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Anyone of Basha? This, this is God who desires to show mercy. He desires to show love. He desires for people to come and repent, right? But when you don't, God is storing up wrath. Why? You say, that doesn't seem right. So just because people don't do what you want, you're going to store up wrath against them? So understand, God's the creator. And God is holy, and God is just. He's never made a mistake. He's not like the Supreme Court. He's never made a mistake. So when we turn against God, He has every right to bring judgment against us, and that's what He's gonna do here. So, uh, behold, I will consume Basha and his house. Verse four, anyone of Basha who dies, in other words, any of his family members who die in the city, the dogs will eat them. Wow. And anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. So God basically is laying it down and saying, Bud, you've blown it. I gave you the opportunity. You have turned against me. Therefore, I'm going to bring my justice into play. And then a just system with a holy God, if you choose to go your own way, then you'll pay for it and yours will be by a very terrible way. Think about it. Dogs. You're going to die by dogs eating you, your flesh in the city, uh, and the birds of the air. Uh, This isn't the the word of the Lord you want to hear. Amen? I don't want to hear that from God. Verse 1 again, "...inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel." That's a little bit misleading. Not that the Scripture is misleading. It's how we interpret the Scripture. This is where that reading that context above and below that what that passage helps you understand and get the real truth in that verse so look let's look at this we just learned in write it down if you want in 1 kings 15:27 that basha was head of a conspiracy to kill nadab the son of jeroboam at that time it didn't tell us anything about god's hand with basha but now in chapter 16 verse 1 we learned that behind the scenes, God moved even through the conspiracy of Basha against Nadab. Basha's name means, listen to this, he who lays waste. So, this is a guy who was a destroyer. He's not somebody who builds up, he's somebody who tears down. Out of his own heart, he killed Jeroboam's son. So, while it says God gave him the opportunity, the reality is God knew from the beginning that he would not follow God. So, he actually is carrying out his own heart here. It's not like God had to do anything. Uh, Basha's name, he who lays waste, which I would say is pretty fitting, wouldn't you? Uh, This is exactly the kind of ruler he proved himself to be. Uh, Because Basha was a wicked king uh, after the pattern of Jeroboam, he would face the same judgment as Jeroboam, okay? Verse 3 again, "...behold, I will consume Basha in his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam." There it is. You're not not physically related to him, but you are spiritual and spiritual headship under him. You're following him. And so, uh, he's really coming in strong and hard against him. Verse 4, "...anyone of Basha who dies in the city the dogs will eat, and anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Uh, that same judgment was promised and fulfilled against the house of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14.11. Okay, It was considered a special disgrace among the Hebrews to have your dead corpse desecrated and left open, not, not buried. So, remember back when the Black Hawk helicopter that went down in Somalia, and they took uh, one of the uh, uh, pilots, and they killed him, and then they took his, on, on CNN, on all the major channels, you see them with a rope around him, dragging him through the streets, a dead corpse of an American soldier, okay? To us, absolutely horrific. But we have no clue what they saw in that because in their land you don't leave a you don't desecrate a body and you don't leave it out in the open you bury it so what they did was trying to show us how much they hate us that's what that was that's a middle eastern thing that's a, a that's a that's a muslim thing uh, it's just amazing not not all muslims I'm not talking about that but the extremist you know making a video and taking a sword and slicing someone's head off. On the video, for you to see, that's just beyond what I can imagine. Well, in this case, God is saying, I'm going to do this because you are an abhorrent to me. And now, He's just, a, he's just in doing it. We're not. He is. Now, verse 5, The rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. And Elah, his son, became king in his place. I would not want to be a son of one of these guys and know that I'm next up. <laughs> well, I guess if I felt that way, I probably would try to follow the Lord, you know. Uh, but this guy was all probably excited. Oh, It's my turn. My dad's gone. Now I can take over. Uh, moreover, the word of the Lord uh, through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Baasha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, provoking God to anger, with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. Okay, so. The fact that Jehu also gave a prophecy tells us that he had a long career as a prophet. Why? Because he's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 19.2, it mentions another word of Jehu that the son of Hananiah gave. That's 50 years later. So this man of God really was a man of God and he lived a long life. God used him in a period to call out the darkness that had come over both Judah and Israel. Verse 7, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. The Bible tells us that by nature, God is merciful, he's gracious, he is slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. If you write down, if you want a good verse on that, Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. Because God is slow to anger... It took a lot of wickedness on the part of these kings in the north north, uh, to provoke him to anger. But he was provoked, and God acted. Don't think that because this Old Testament teaching that the New Testament somehow is any different. Don't think that now in the New Testament, God's not storing up wrath. That's different here. Back then, he stored up wrath against those who turned on him, who were against him but in the New Testament, no, that's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of false teachers out there, and there's a lot of teachers who are misinterpreting passages of Scripture. They they want to somehow play down sin, and they want to play down God's wrath. They just want it to be all about God loves you, and, and everything's good, and And just because God is taking His time and showing patience and long-suffering does not in any way mean that God is not going to judge the unrepentant sinner. The unrepentant sinner, He will be judged. The Old Testament, the soul that sins shall die. In the New Testament, it's appointed for everyone to live and then die and then die judgment that's what it says in the new testament okay so we we can easily get lost in this if i can take you down a side road for a second we might never come back (laughs) that's okay but this is this is important this is i want you to write this down okay there's a passage in the new testament that came to mind when i was thinking about god showing his his long suffering and then finally judging these northern kings there's a passage in the New Testament that is often misinterpreted. The reason it's misinterpreted is what I said earlier, because today's society, uh, people only want a sound bite. So take a little p- piece of Scripture and share it, because it sounds really good. They don't read above it, they don't read below it. If they did, they would be ashamed of taking that sound bite and using it the way they're using it, okay? Let me give you the passage. This is one that's misquoted all the time. And some of you might even, you didn't know. And so you were using it in the wrong way. It's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans 2, 4. Okay, let me read it for you. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So, these people who don't want to talk about sin and they don't want to talk about judgment, they take the last half of that. They say, yeah, but God's, hey, bottom line, God's kindness, God's goodness is what leads us to repent. Don't you know that? It's God's goodness and kindness. We don't need to talk about, you know, sin. What are they doing with the passage that says that what precedes repentance is what? You guys know what I'm talking about in the New Testament? What comes before repentance? Godly sorrow. Sorrow over what? Sin. So either that's right and this is wrong, or that's right and they're misinterpreting this. So let's look at this. Is it really God's kindness that leads people to repent? Okay? When it's misused, it's often because they're using the passage to downplay They're soft-pedaling the truth about who God is and about sin. Joel Osteen, let me give you one example. I'll call him by name. Joel Osteen, he said in a sermon, quote, Listen, listen, don't dangle people over the fires of hell. Listen, that doesn't draw people to God. They know what kind of life they're living. They know how bad they've lived. What you've got to do is talk about the goodness of God. Listen, it's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. Well, first of all, where he's wrong, totally wrong, because if he's right, then the Bible is wrong. Do um, you think man really understands the depth of his sin? And that's what he said. They know what kind of life they, they live. They know how bad they've they've uh, they've lived? No, they do not. They do not know. They don't know that they are in total depravity apart from Christ. So, let me me take this a little further. Is that really what Romans 2.4 is saying? Well, what's ironic about this view in Romans 2.4 is that they are trying to establish that we don't need to talk about sin, but here's the thing about Romans 2.4. That verse is plucked from a scripture most profound, that is the most profound discourse on man's depravity and God's judgment. Literally, what's written above that verse, above it and below it, is about man's depravity and God's judgment to come. So they've chosen the verse to say that God doesn't really care about talking about sin and having to deal with repentance, it's goodness that leads to repentance when that's not at all what those verses above and below are talking about. The biblical order in any gospel presentation is always first warning of danger and then the way of escape. Isn't that the truth about the gospel? You first need to hear that you're a sinner. Then, all of a sudden, the fact that God made a way of escape really sounds appealing. It's true, right? If you never heard that you were in sin, that you were lost in your sin, that you could never be saved out of your own goodness, then then you would think you could be good enough. And therefore, if that's the case, why do you need to be saved? The reason you need to be saved by Christ is because you can't save yourself, right? First, the judgment on sin, and then the means of pardon. First, the message of condemnation, and then the offer of forgiveness. First, the bad news of guilt, and then the good news of grace. We need all of it. We need to communicate that to people. The whole message and purpose of the loving, redeeming grace of God, offering eternal life through Jesus Christ, rests upon the reality of man's universal guilt of abandoning God and thereby being under the sentence that God brings, which is eternal condemnation and death. That's why the main body of Romans... By the way, Romans 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and they're pulling it right out of chapter 2. So they're in the smack dab middle of the first... First 3 chapters of Romans is all about man's sinfulness that he that God is storing up wrath against those who practice unrighteousness they suppress the truth in unrighteousness If you want to approach Romans 2:4 from the right context then you'll see that it is talking about our guilt and the just, justness or the justice of God's wrath Romans, let me just read, so they, they're, they're giving you Romans uh, 2, 4. Let me just back up down to verse 2 and read to verse 5. Just the verses above and below. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What things? Unrighteousness. Okay, now he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think you're going to escape it? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead your friends? What it means is, not that kindness itself leads you, but that God's giving you time for you to see His kindness, for you to understand. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That's not storing up wrath in your mind. That's you. Your actions, your thoughts, every part of you, because you're lost in sin, you're storing up wrath. God's storing up wrath against you. He he will judge you for that. Now, you can see why Romans 2.4 is so frequently divorced from its context, because it doesn't fit at all. Okay, In the full context of Paul's writing, what he's meaning here, church, is God's goodness, that is, His richness of kindness and tolerance and patience. Romans 2, 2 through 3 explains how God demonstrates the tolerance and patience by withholding the wrath that we deserve. God's goodness is the reality that the unrepentant sinner today has not yet experienced God's wrath, God's judgment. That's the goodness. The goodness of God leads to repentance, okay? He's giving you time to repent. But in the end, if you don't, His wrath is on you. So what message do you want to say to that person who keeps taking advantage of God's goodness? You're going to die and go to hell if you continue to do that. Does that sound like something that people want to hear today? No. Is it something they need to hear? Yes. Do you love them enough to let them know so that they can possibly miss hell? I I don't want anybody to go to hell, and neither does God. But that's what He's going to do. Those who've rejected Christ and the work of His righteousness will go to hell. So we see these guys in the Old Testament, you know, and we see how they're living, unlike Jeroboam and Basha. I don't want to presume upon God's uh, long-suffering. You know, long I want to get it right with God now while I still can. That is the goodness that leads to repentance. Don't get it right. That makes sense. So so now the next time somebody says, Well, it's the goodness of God that leads her, say, Whoa, where are you pulling that from? Where's that in the Bible? It's in Romans chapter 2. Have you read Romans chapter 1 through 3? Because it's all about God's wrath and the depravity of man. That right there, they're taking it out of context. Okay. Uh, Just to finish this little piece out, 1 Kings 16:2, God said that he lifted Basha out of the dust and set him as a ruler over Israel. In doing that, God used Basha to bring judgment upon the house of Jeroboam. But let's be clear, God did not coerce somehow a reluctant Basha to go and take out the other king. No, that king wanted, or Basha wanted to take him out. God just allowed him to do what he was doing, which was evil. Okay? So that's that's very important that we see that. How are we doing on time? What time is it? Okay. Um, I. I really wanna cover verse eight right on down through verse 14 together. And I don't think I have enough time to do that. I don't wanna cut it short, I'm concerned about that. I think think with what I just shared about Romans two, four, pulling it out of thinking about Basha and Jeroboam and how God showed long suffering, but they didn't care. uh, I I just think there's enough there for us to, to chew on out of the word so that we don't end up like these guys presuming upon the grace, the long-suffering of the Lord, when we fall short. Now, if you're saved, this is interesting, if you're saved, you should not have to live your life every day going, oh man, I fell again, I'm gonna have to start all over. If you're saved, that means God looks at you through Christ as if you never sinned, past, present, future. If you've been covered by Christ, Christ died for all sin, not just certain sins not just the sins of your past, not just the sins of today, all of your sins. You, have, you will not, listen, the believer, a true believer who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, will not be judged against sin on judgment day. Only the unrepentant sinner will face the, white, the great white throne judgment. You will be judged on the works of, that God has called you to do once you believed. So either your works, right now you're serving the Lord. Remember, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. If, and so if you're doing those as unto the Lord and not to be seen by man, Bible says when we get to heaven, all of our works will be thrown into a fire, a purifying fire. And only the things that were truly done unto the Lord will come out the other side. It was interesting listening to uh, one of uh, Bill's brothers who who pointed to a man sitting over on the wall and said this man's well-known all over certain counties up in central Florida and the good things he's done in his life. Now, that man might be saved. I don't know. But if he's not saved... All of those good works mean nothing. He will stand in judgment from the Father against his sin. And if he is saved, but all those good things he did, he did to be seen, to be spoken well of, I've got an uncle and he's a great guy. He he would do anything for you. And he's up in years now, but he's prideful about his accomplishments and all that he's done and what he's, who he's helped and how much people need him and rely on him, but he doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> and it just breaks my heart. None of that stuff's going to matter. But can you imagine going before God and, and now you're, you're a believer and you're there, okay? You're not being judged against sin. But now everything you've ever done is put in that fire, that purifying fire. And you know, let's say that you're well known for all your good things that you did in the, in the kingdom of God. You gave money, big money. You, they even had buildings named after you. And you did this and that and all these things. And they throw all that in the fire. And then coming out the other side, it's just a little pile of something about that big. Because almost everything you did You wanted man to see you in it. And then you got somebody who, I don't even know if they've ever done anything, or or I see them doing stuff, but they don't seem to care that anybody notice whether they do it or not. They're not doing it to be seen. And that stuff is put in the fire and on the other side. Beautiful reward from God because their heart was right. That's what we want, right? So, Scripture says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's is doing. Um, I, I think it's important that we, we really check ourselves with that tonight. Father, thank you. You didn't just speak about a wicked kings, but you're speaking to believers, too, who we, too, can fall into traps. And in this life, in this world, we can be motivated by wrong wrong motivations. And... You know, Lord, whether what we're doing is for your glory or whether it's for our own glory. I pray that you would just check us, Lord, because we desire to serve you. We desire to walk in your ways. We desire to fulfill your good works on this earth, not ours. So Lord, may we not take any credit for the things that you allow us to do. May we give you all the glory. They're your works, they're your gifts, they're your abilities. And you've given us time and energy and a mind on this earth to do them in. And I pray that, Lord, we, we would just walk that way always before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good to be with you guys. And uh, we'll pick it up again next week. Let the Lord kind of guide us.